Hello and welcome to episode 4 of The Orbit Season 2. My name is Umema Suhail and I'm the editor-in-chief at the Sputnik, Wilfrid Laurier University's independent student newspaper on the Brantford campus. The Orbit is the Sputnik's official podcast where I sit down and have a chat with writers and creators on our team about their published work and our monthly issues. In this episode, I am so excited to be joined by our lead opinion writer, Jada Phillips. She can introduce herself. Hello, everybody. My name is Jada. I'm a final year student at Laurier, and I just joined this buttoning this year as the lead opinion writer. Some things about me are I love trashy reality shows. I love my dog, Zinni. I love baking and books. And I also graduated law school. Fun fact, I was in the Sussex program. So I think that makes me qualified to talk about this topic today. So yeah, that's a bit about me. Speaking of the topic for today, Jada wrote an opinion piece called Who is the Reasonable Person Anyway? in our holiday issue now on stands around campus. She raises discussion about the concept of the reasonable person in Canadian law and its validity over time as our society grows and changes. So Jada, let's just jump right into it. Um, What made you want to write this article? Um, That's a great question. I encountered this topic a lot throughout my time in law school, like the reasonable person. It was in a lot of my classes, like from criminal law to like tort law, contract, like it's a universal concept that's employed in a lot of areas of law. And having encountered it so many times, like after a while you think, who is the reasonable person? Like they have this universal concept, like this is the right person this is the person, this is the right or wrong thing that they're supposed to do. But I think it's such a, humans are such subjective beings. What is reasonable to one person is unreasonable to another person. And everyone comes in such different shapes, colors, beliefs, experiences. So I, having met this concept so many times, you can't help but think critically, like, is this actually an objective standard or should this be used in law or is there a better standard that we can use you just can't help but think that yeah and I know you talked a little bit about why you know this is so important to you just because you've seen it over and over and over again and I just want to know because obviously like I haven't been to law school (laughs) (laughs) and I I don't assume that a lot of our listeners have as well so I'm just wondering, like, what are you noticing when you keep seeing this concept of the reasonable person? Is there something about it that, in particular, that kind of bothers you about it? Or like, have you seen it being successful at all in cases or not successful? I mean, I definitely think it has its purpose. I don't think it's necessarily a completely wrong tool to use within the legal system. What it's meant to do is to compare the conduct of somebody in a case to see if they acted reasonably or like to measure up their actions that they did with the consequences, the potential consequences when deciding a case. So I think it has its purpose. It's a more egalitarian um, method of deciding in cases. Like, did you do the right thing? Is this reasonable? And what should the consequences be for the actions that you decided to take? which I don't think necessarily like at its core is at fault, but I think 
there's a lot of critiques out there about once you depending on who this person is that's being charged or like is bringing case to the court what's reasonable in their situation or to them is very different from I guess the traditional views of of this reasonable person in law especially if you look at cases about that's a bit of a trigger warning people um there's gonna be some sensitive topics um talked about um but if you look at um cases of like sexual harassment and sexual violence and stuff like that you can quickly go into the territory of victim blaming if you compare the conduct of someone in that situation being like was this reasonable was this not because in that case like how do you decide what is a reasonable conduct if you're being harassed or abused sexually so I think there's some fault and there's also other points like if the reasonable person is such like a perfect infallible being as a concept but people are not so it's unfair to hold people to this perfect standard if we're not that as people like we're messy we make we cause a lot of issues like there's lots of problems that's why we end up in court most of the time anyways because we're not perfect so I think that yes there is some discretion use which is also another problem but I'll come back to that there is discretion use but overall as a concept it's supposed to be like this perfect reasonable person this upstanding person in society like what would they do like exactly perfect in the situation but it's not it doesn't always pan out like that and then also a lot of criticisms me personally I don't know I can see the basis in this argument but a lot of scholars and stuff say that the reasonable person is just a way for judges to exert their own discretion which when judges decide a case they can obviously supplement their own opinions or beliefs from the law or their experience and stuff like that in the decision so if they're saying this is what I believe a reasonable person is then that is them exercising judicial discretion so there is a bit of problems some people are for judicial discretion and some people are against it so that's a different debate entirely but that's another point that they bring up about the use of the reasonable person Yeah, so I've only taken maybe two law classes in my entire life, grade 11 and grade 12, right? So, like, from, from my knowledge, you know, and what's always kind of interested me about the reasonable person was just that I, I'd always think, like, isn't it a little subjective, though? Because, like, I'm sure that, like, I would have done something different than somebody else, but we're still, like, thinking according to our own, like, I I understand there's, like, a general sense of common sense, right? Like, everyone has common sense, but, you know, in some situations, I might act differently than someone else, you know, even though we're both thinking logically and according to, like, what's common sense for us, but... I, I don't know. I, I just always thought like, because like, it's not like they would have precedent cases for everything, right? Or like, you know, it's not like they would have like something that says what everyone should do in every single situation that will ever happen ever, you know, like this is kind of up to judges to decide. Of course. I mean, the concept of a reasonable person was never like 
codified in law. It was kind of just mentioned by a judge when deciding a case. It's like an act of legal fiction. So it's just kind of like storytelling, just an instrument to make a point. And in the original case, it's a, a UK case. The defendant was ba- basically put hay. He stored it improperly. I'm trying to remember the details. He stored it improperly and caused a fire in, in his neighbor's house. And because of that, the judge was like, oh, as a reasonable person, could have seen the risk for him improperly storing his hay wrong. This case was like over 100 years ago. So that was the topics (laughs) at the time. But in that case, obviously, I don't think the stakes are as high. I mean, of course, it's sad that the person's house burned down, but it was kind of a clear cut case. If you store hay wrong and it could catch on fire and cause your neighbor's house to catch on fire as well then a reasonable person wouldn't put their hay there so i see the purpose in that case and they've tried to use it the same way to make it kind of equal and just a standard procedure but when it leaks into other areas of law i feel like criminal and such that's where the case become a lot more difficult a lot more nuanced a lot more complex with the issues that they're talking about i feel like that's where a lot of the gray area and kind of contention lies because it's not necessarily such an easy concept to translate into those areas of law. Yeah, I think you mentioned that Hay case in your article. So what was it called exactly? I think it's Vaughn versus Menlo or something. Like that. Yeah. All right. Well, in this case, you know, you mentioned that like someone improperly stored hay and their neighbor's house burnt down which is I feel like a really big deal like people could have died you know people could have been seriously injured and I feel like I don't know if their neighbor I don't know much about this case so you tell me but you know if the neighbor had actually died right this would be okay so they didn't die no but uh, you know what I mean and then this would have turned into like a manslaughter thing so I get what you mean when it's like, you know, in this case, the reasonable person is kind of like set in stone. It's very clear, black and white, right? Like what they yeah. did was kind of obviously wrong. But then when we delve into like sexual assault cases and um, rape cases um, specifically, it's, you know, it, there's for whatever reason, a gray area. So I think in your article, you also mentioned um, the fact that there's a reasonable woman standard that's separate from like the reasonable person standard. So I was wondering, like, because I've again, I've never really heard of this before because I'm not in law school and I assume a lot of our listeners are not. So could you maybe like shed some light on what that really means? Yeah, I mean, there's not like actually like a reasonable woman standard that the the courts are just like yeah we're gonna use a standard for each person for each case it's kind of the reasonable woman standard kind of grew out of like the feminist movement and the critiquing of law and it's a lot of like scholarly like literature that have taken again the reasonable person and critiqued it and they've made the reasonable woman um to kind of give a feminist perspective on the topic but the reasonable woman again grew out of mostly sexual harassment and sexual abuse cases to kind of 
dispel a lot of the rape and myths that were being perpetuated and to just give the feminist perspective on certain issues. And now the courts are a lot more flexible about the way they apply the reasonable person standard. They, again, there's no like specific standards for each person, but they can be like, they can't hold a person to a standard that they won't ever achieve. So if you're talking about someone with disabilities, for example, you can't compare it to someone who doesn't have a disability because that would be unfair and unreasonable for a judge to hold them to that standard when they can never achieve that. So there is some flexibility on how it's applied, but a lot of these like other standards, like reasonable woman standard are kind of just born out of critiques of the actual reasonable person standard that existed. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I, I want to clarify, is is the reasonable woman standard really like a legitimate thing that's used in court? No, right? I mean, yes and no. It's not like a judge would just be like, yeah, today I'm going to use the reasonable woman standard. Like it's not going to show up in like the decision, but they will have it in the back of their mind. Like the way that cases are decided judges can pull from a lot of legal theories in their mind and they won't necessarily specifically reference it when they're making a decision. If you look at actual court cases when, on like online, if you go to like the Supreme Court website and look at court decisions, they won't be like, yeah, today I'm using this specific legal theory or whatever. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. They kind of just say, yeah, in accordance to, you know, the fundamental freedom for whatever in law or this is just the right thing to do they will and they'll just go on and be like from the woman's perspective it must be included in order to make a fair decision they might say something in that realm but they won't necessarily say like today i'm going to use this certain legal standard sometimes they do but i am that's all to say that yes and no to your question <laughs> Yeah, okay. It's like, this is something that's kind of, you, you said, like, at the back of their minds. So, in a way, they're kind of treating women and men differently according to what would be reasonable for them and their individual experiences. So, it's not necessarily, like, discrimination. That's not what I'm saying, right? It's basically equity in a way where they're, like, taking into account their different experiences with the world, I guess. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're supposed to do that anyways with Anybody they meet in any area of law, they're supposed to, of course, take in the background and experiences of the person before yeah. deciding to order to make an equitable decision. But they don't, yeah, they don't necessarily state specifically because this person is a woman or because this person is a certain race or economic background or something that I'm making this decision. It's just something that's always supposed to be in the back of your mind and considered. Yeah, of course. And that kind of like brings me into battered woman syndrome, which is something I learned about in high school. So, you know, that when I first heard of the battered woman syndrome, I was thinking like that is, you know, great that they have it because and just to add context and, you know, Jada, please correct me if I'm wrong. But the battered woman syndrome was basically enacted because 
Um, it took into account women's individual experiences when they've been in like domestic violence, um, domestically violent situations or have faced intimate partner violence from their husbands, boyfriends, whoever's even even like other like the same in se same sex marriages, right? or relationships where there is some sort of abuse against a woman. Like there've been so many situations and so many cases where, for example, you know, just because of pure fear and due to the trauma that a woman has faced um, in that relationship, they've kind of acted out, not necessarily when they were in imminent danger, which is when self-defense would be um, logical, but, you know, they've kind of acted out in an act of violence. Right. And then in the courts kind of considered, well, we can't really judge you for that because wouldn't any person do something like that if you were if you dealt with so much trauma and so much abuse and neglect for so long? So I'm like the thing is, I really liked how we have battered syndrome today, but there are a lot of flaws to it as well. For example, shouldn't it be battered person syndrome? You know, who said men can't also go through a lot of trauma? You know, and what about children, too? Because there's situations where children are killing their own parents. I mean, I, mean, I think that definitely has, that's definitely kind of opening another door to, like, psychological issues. But, like, I've I've read also in, in the media, there's, like, you know, situations where, like, kids have been neglected or abused for a long time. And then they take that, their anger out, like, violently or you know just to protect themselves in general and again because it's not imminent they weren't in imminent danger this can't be counted as self-defense but then it's like what else would you, like what would you do you know in that situation right so I don't know what do, what do you think about that yeah um I did encounter the battered woman syndrome in my time in law school it wasn't that prevalent though because though it was used at one point in time, um, it's not widely regarded as like an acceptable defense anymore because of exactly the reasons why you're stating that it's not just limited to women. And also there's a lot of times when you have a defense, you have to have like, um, you have to prove that you have some sort of mental condition or like some sort of reason to compel your actions. So a lot of times they use like expert testimony or actual mental health and illnesses, but it has to be like actually proven and accepted within um, the medical societies. But the actual proof of battered women syndrome, there's mixed opinions about its actual validity as like an illness um so they don't tend to use it anymore um but like you said it's anybody who's facing any sort of abuse or violence or such will have probably ptsd or of course they'll act out in a certain way in order to protect themselves so there's other ways that the courts tend to hear these cases and the, the way they're argued they look for other defenses. And of course, if you're not just looking at the traditional defenses of like self-defense or like intoxication or automatism, 
they're like big words, but <laughs> if these, there's like standard defenses that we use in law in order to argue um, um, cases. So even if it's not, doesn't fall under one of those things, judges will still take into account the abuse that they're facing. And of course that it could in some cases be foreseeable I won't say reasonable, because that will be debatable depending on the facts of the case, but at least foreseeable that if someone were to face such extreme violence for such a long period of time that, of course, that they will act out in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just looking at your article, too, and, you know, you, you quote Martha Minot. From uh, from her book, Making All the Difference, Inclusion, Exclusion in American Law. And, you know, and I think she talks about how, uh, well, to directly quote her, and this is in Jada's article, uh, these problems of inequality can be exasperated both by treating members of minority groups the same as members of the majority and by treating the two groups differently. So that's something I did want to bring up because... I know that we're talking about, you know, sexual assault cases right now and the differences between how men and women see the world and how they should be kind of judged differently based on that. So it's, you know, equitable. It's not necessarily equal, but it's equal according to their circumstances. But this kind of stays at the back of, of judges' minds. So when it comes to different races or different, you know, how people look different, you know, um, I know in Canadian law, like you, you already mentioned at the beginning that we've kind of already accommodated for differences in disabilities. But you want to come to like people from minority groups, what do you think is being done? Because, because I'm not I'm not really sure, like are judges taking that into consideration? And then would that be considered unfair or more fair? Or, I don't know. Yeah, I've, I mean, I feel like it's getting better. I feel like certain areas are a lot more progressive than others. And sometimes it's not. It really depends on who's hearing the case. I feel like in regards to women and their treatment in the law, I feel like Canadian courts have been a lot more progressive in that regard, even though they do sometimes get things wrong. I definitely think they've made a lot of progress um, in terms of race, I mean, that's a huge topic. <laughs> There's so many different races and everyone has such different lived experiences and even like people of the same race within Canada have different lived experiences. So it's difficult obviously to kind of manage that difference, like in the quote. Oh, in one hand, you have to treat everyone equally before the court. Like that's one of the fundamental principles of the legal system. But you also have to account for the differences because if you don't account for the lived experiences and the differences of people, then you could potentially exacerbate already prevalent issues or perpetuate like racism or other forms of prejudice within the legal system. So there's a definitely a difficult juggling act that the court system has to do. But yeah, I think 
a lot of progress is made the more people are aware and talking about these issues. Like definitely with the recent thing with Black Lives Matter, that was a huge thing to shine into light of the issues of policing and such in like black communities. And while that happened in the US and a lot of people think that it's not as severe in Canada, those things still happen here. It still exists. So I think that's brought the forefront, been brought to the forefront of people's minds. And I think definitely the legal system is definitely aware and listening. And especially with the indigenous communities in Canada, like that's, it's quite difficult because you're reconciling two different completely like different worldviews. It's not even like the same systems. Like a lot of these nations, First Nations, all these indigenous communities, they're their own sovereign nations with their own complex legal and governance systems and beliefs. And you're reconciling with a completely different system. And yeah, it's, it's complex and it's still changing and they're still trying to make things better. But obviously, you know, with all things of this magnitude, it takes time. And I definitely, I think people are trying for sure. Like the more that people talk about it, just the common person, the more we see these stories in the news, the more people of color or people of diverse backgrounds who get into the legal profession or who engage with the court system, even if they're not a lawyer or a judge, but are still in the legal system in some capacity, it makes a difference. And people in academia or people just overall criticizing or just analyzing what the current state is of our laws or policies and stuff like that, I definitely think it makes a difference. Yeah, for sure. I agree that, you know, of course, public discourse in any sense can, you know, help with change and you know it makes a definite difference I guess what I'm like I'm thinking though it takes so much to get the government to do stuff and I know the government is different than like the legal system but for example right when it comes to politics and policy change it requires a lot of effort from the public to make sure that that happens like protests boycotts like we have to we as a public we have to do a lot to get governments to realize oh this isn't what the people want and we're supposed to be representative of the people you know that's our job as politicians um so when it comes to the, like our legal system and you know obviously all these cases are reported in in the news there are specific crime reporters court reporters right but like does that discourse really, you know, or how much of it does it take for there to actually be legal change for judges? Like, do judges read, you know, this the the news and be like, okay, or do are they like, okay, well, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. I've been a judge for like however many years, you know, and this is just how it is. This is how it works. It takes a lot, you know, for legal change. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, lawyers and judges and everyone who works in the legal system, we're people too. I mean, we go out in the real world and we interact with people. So I don't necessarily think they live completely isolated from the world around them. I still think they engage and see what's going on. But to the question of how does the legal system impact change, it's kind of complicated because one of the fundamental principles of like the division of powers, the legal system technically is not supposed to like quote unquote make laws, like that's parliament's job. Like they're not supposed to have any kind of opinions about it. We're just supposed to interpret what the laws are. And even if you see like in Supreme Court cases where they're overruled decisions and stuff like that, it's interpreting the laws to make that decision. So either way, they have to work within the parameters that they're given. So I think, of course, it matters to be progressive in the legal system and to include a a bunch of different topics and voices and perspectives within like legal training and within the positions, people who hold positions and the type of content that's taught in like law schools and so forth. But of course, it all comes back (laughs) to parliament and people that you vote in power. So definitely vote everybody that's one of the most important civic duties because it does shape your future and does make an impact. And part of the reason why I decided to study law is because I see all this stuff happening and it obviously makes me so mad and upset about like all the injustices and all the things I have to see. And I'm like, I think a lot of people can plainly see that what's wrong is wrong. I don't necessarily think people are completely oblivious to the fact, but you know, if you have a problem with all this stuff, like you can, there is power within you like doing stuff, like you can go out and make a difference. So I definitely think if people were to engage and to potentially get more involved in their political system or the legal system, it definitely does make an impact. And I'm seeing that because especially like within the law school, like talking to other people, I see that like people's opinions are definitely changing and being more progressive and thinking about things about equality and justice and stuff like that for people who traditionally have been excluded from these places. So I think overall sentiments, people do want change and they are sympathetic to the cause and they want to do more, but you just have to do with what you got, the tools you have. So I do think there's a place for change to be done in the legal system. But I, it's kind of difficult because we're not supposed to be the ones to create it necessarily. I feel like we're more of a support system, if anything. Like it's supposed to start from one area, like within the government and we're supposed to support or people will come to the courts and have lawsuits and things like that. Then we're supposed to support the progression and of certain values and certain decisions. So that's what I think the role is of the legal system. But, you know, other people have different opinions. <laughs> that's just me. Yeah, um, 
again because you've been through law school and what was your bachelor's at, at laurier like before because i know the sussex program is like two years at laurier three years sussex and then one year back here right yeah yeah i'm my final year at laurier but my background is human rights and then i did law school so mm. and i think that actually that background is now that I'm thinking about it, it, makes sense, you know, based on what you're writing about, not only at the Sputnik, but like what you're what you're thinking about. And like, you know, when you when you analyze these topics, the fact that, you know, you said that this is why you wanted to go to law school to begin with and like learn law and practice it eventually in the future. I'm I'm I'm, I'm assuming because I had the same view for for a long time as well, that, you know, as a lawyer, you can kind of change things. You can defend people who need it. You can give a voice to those who don't have one. And that's what I like about journalism as well, that I feel like it's, I mean, probably on a lot, like a, a smaller scale, but, you know, you're amplifying people's voices. Um, so during law school in your classes, are you guys taught how to deal with certain situations like this? Like, just because we're going to get insider information here from someone who like has been through law school. Is there, are you told something about like, if you see like, I don't know, a situation with like a, someone from a minority group or from like a different different racial backgrounds like how would you would you look at the case differently or is it because I don't know there's even been statistics and studies that came out that said that you know there's not necessarily more crime in quote-unquote black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods it's just in white neighborhoods the crime is a lot more hidden so like people have rich parents that can you know take them out of jail or hire fancy lawyers so i don't know like are you how how do you guys kind of dodge all those privileges that people have in the court system when it comes to their not only their gender as we talked about earlier but their race and then also their class yeah this is honestly i'm still grappling with these questions like at this current moment yeah that's difficult i mean obviously just looking at the face value of the case if there's if people are being discriminated or certain actions are done against a person for a protected characteristic then obviously we have protections for that like human rights codes and stuff like that so obviously there's that to protect people and then also there's specific laws and cases that pertain to indigenous people so they also have their own set of, I guess, law that's contextually relevant to them and their experiences and their needs within the legal system. But beyond that, it's deeply personal because one of the faults I think about law school definitely is we're taught to engage with the law, to critique it, to use it. But as practitioners of the law, like actually dealing with people on a day-to-day -day basis, working with people, we're not really taught any of that at all. <laughs> but I mean, me for like me personally, I was fortunate to be in my law school's legal clinic. So I worked in the housing, housing law division. So I dealt with people with a lot of housing issues, but of course people who come to get free legal services from students are predominantly from like lower income or backgrounds. A lot of them had lots of 
mental and disabilities and they just needed help. So from over the course of dealing with people, you learn the best way to talk to people and how to help them the best just through experience, which I don't necessarily think it's the best way because over that time you could potentially perpetuate like harm to people without actually knowing it, even if you're very progressive as a person and you care about all these things and you're like very knowledgeable about issues, certain issues. But again, if you don't have the experience with dealing with these people who have complex issues who come to you, then you're kind of out of your depth there. Like you don't really know what to do. So I definitely think that's a flaw. And I learned a lot from that. And yeah, I, to be a lawyer, you definitely, a lot of people have different motivations on why they do it, the type of law they want to do, the type of cases that they want to take on. Some people are really just in it for the money. They don't really care about things like that. They'll just take whatever will get them the best paycheck or things like that. And some people do it just out, out of wanting to help people or they care about these certain issues, like whether it be like race or gender issues or things like that. A lot of people will specialize and particularly go for those types of cases because they do want to make an impact and they do want to represent those people and they do want their voices heard. But it's deeply personal what happens and what you do. So yeah, I think it's complicated. I'm still thinking about my place and what I want to do and how I can best serve the people that I think need the most help because I never went into law school thinking about like, oh yeah, I want to be this fancy corporate lawyer who works for like Google and does all those types of stuff. Like that was never my goal. So I still think about that today. I'm like, because at the end of law school, I definitely can admit I was quite jaded with the whole experience because I'm like, I went into this trying to equip myself with the best tools to be able to help people because let's be honest if you're trying to like challenge this whole complex system with laws and all this stuff like that like it's hard to do unless you have that background and information so that's why I went into law school but by the end of it I'm having faced all the stuff that I did I'm like am I just becoming the people that I kind of despise. <laughs> I don't want to say despise, but like the type of person that I didn't want to be. I'm like, I didn't want to have fees that were like, like enormous that people can't get the access to justice that they need. Like, I don't want to just take certain cases just because like, I have to, like, I want to represent people who actually need the help and that I definitely think that their case is worthy and it needs to be heard, but I'm still grappling with that and I'm still freaking out, but I definitely think it's deeply personal to each and everybody who wants to practice law. Yeah, that's a very fair point. 
I think in every profession, there's going to be people that are in it for the money. Even like, you know, even me personally, it's like my, not that I'm in it for the money, but I'm having like family who's telling me like, if you do want to go to law school, eventually go to like Toronto, like University of Toronto, that's like, you know, corporate law. And I'm just like, I want to go into family law. <laughs> if if I if anything, you know, if I do go to law school, it would be that. You know, I I now I I tend to change my mind quite often when it comes to like law school. So I might like change my mind about that. But it's like there's always going to be people that are in it for the money even in like, you know, even as doctors, even as, you know, even in in the only thing I can really speak to right now which is journalism right? Like even there, there's some people who genuinely want to cover events for the fact of showing the public or like, you know, raising people's voices saying, hey, this is happening to this person. Let's, let's cover this. Let's write a story about this, right? Um, and there's just some people that are like, do their job, just report on what they have to just for the sake of doing it, you know, and, you know, there's people like that everywhere. But, um, but yeah, I think it, the law school that or at least from your experience that you're mentioning it's it kind of sets people up a bit if they kind of throw them into like hands-on experience right away and like okay deal with it you know and you're kind of hurting I want to say the people that come to those very new law students with no experience and they come maybe with their like drug addiction or with their you know trauma and their abuse and they say like well this happened to me and like I'm here because of this reason they come from different backgrounds and then this like new law student is like okay and then I don't know looks in their textbooks for answers but yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can't just you know throw people in these situations it's harmful for the law student in terms of their learning but then um, because they have to learn based on hands-on experience at the expense of other people. It's just, you know, but so so I get that that's kind of harmful, but it's nice that you had that experience and you kind of saw that firsthand. And again, like, you're also right about the fees, like lawyer fees or are known, even in TV, like even in entertainment media, they're always like, well, you know, this person can't afford the fees or blah, 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 fees, fees, right? Like everyone's talking about that because it's it's just a common knowledge thing. You know, you don't have to pay your doctor in Canada, but you're, you're going to have to pay your lawyer. And it's like, it's like a price for justice almost. It's like, if you don't want your name, I don't know, ran through mud, like you kind of have to pay like a lot of money and it's like well then only the rich privileged people can afford that but then that doesn't mean that or does that mean that not everyone should have equal access to justice and you know the Canadian system we're like oh well you know pro bono cases and like well you know free public lawyer right and there's there's like they, they try to have processes and systems that would kind of counter that but the reality is with pro bono lawyers and with the public quote-unquote lawyers that the government hands out to people who can't afford one um or points to people who can't afford one um it, they they're already stacked with like hundreds of cases they can't focus on the tiny details even though everyone deserves to have the tiny details analyzed really only a lawyer that deals with one case at a time maybe with like a two-month break in between you know only only that kind of lawyer can really deal with 
you know, the, the nuances of your situation and really try to help you in that way. A pro bono lawyer, you're lucky if he knows your name or she, right? Or they, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is why I think it's so important that there's a wide array of people represented in law school and, and practicing lawyers. Like, this is why I think it's so important because the more people who have obviously varying experiences, the more that's included, like you talk to people, these are your classmates, these are your colleagues, these are the people you deal with every day. Like this stuff will be more dealt with and more like part of your daily life before you're practicing and meeting these people as clients like you'll just already have that experience with a bunch of different people already from law school and you'll hear their perspectives because we do talk in classes we hear each other's opinions and interpretations of what we think the law should be or like how a case should be handled like we talk to each other so you get that experience with other people so I definitely think it's so important and I really wish that law school and the legal career was a lot more open and attainable for a lot of people. I think it would do, it would be such a great service to actually serving the underlying principles of the legal system of like justice and equity and stuff for all people. I think starting from the top is obviously so important. So I definitely think that's something to be considered definitely <laughs> for sure and just to kind of wrap up i want to bring it back to the reasonable person standard that you you talked about in your article what do you think what kind of amendment do you think needs to be made if anything i knew you were gonna ask me this and honestly i've thought about this over the course of my three-year law school career yeah. and after and i honestly don't know like, I feel that I think the purpose of the reasonable person standard is honestly like a fair and serviceable purpose. Like, you're just trying to ensure that the conduct of someone is reasonable and proportional and the consequences fit what they did and that people act fairly. I definitely think that's important and not a bad purpose for using it but I definitely think there should be more inclusion but I ne don't necessarily think it's the reasonable person standard that's really the part of the matter I think the legal system overall just needs to be more equitable and inclusive to a wide array of different people and I think the reasonable person could just be one of the ways that we try to make it more inclusive and think critically about our position as legal practitioners and people who interpret the law or interact with the law. But I think overall, the legal system definitely has a lot of work to be done to make it a fair and equitable place for everybody. Yeah, so do you think that there should be, if anything, more standards implemented to kind of like work around the the gaps i guess that the regional standard doesn't already cover possibly 
I I think that could be um that could be an option, but then you have all these standards for all these different people and of course, you know, people being different and having lots of different experiences and looking different and thinking different, like not everybody's going to fit in these boxes. So some people still might be left behind, even if you create all these different standards. And I know like, I'm not answering the question, but I mean, this is what we do. <laughs> like when we interact, like in the law school, when we talk about laws and stuff like that, we're not looking necessarily for answers. We're just trying to engage and critically think. And then eventually the more we engage with it, we might come to an answer, but Honestly, I don't, I don't know, and I, I want to be completely honest. <laughs> you know what? I appreciate your honesty because that's a very fair answer. That's a very reasonable, I think, answer. Not everyone is gonna know the answer or have the answer in mind. I do think it's important to like try your best to come up with solutions. You know, it's it's a great foundation that law students today and right now, as we speak, are you know critically thinking about the laws and the policies and like yeah, well not necessarily policies because that's controlled by parliament but you know the legalities of everything um i do think it's necessary to have like solutions and you know it's very fair that you know there there quite literally isn't one right now but um but yeah i, I do hope that there is one in the future and what i'm thinking is that there could be something, and correct me if this is like already a thing, which I hope, but that background and context is taken very, very seriously. That it's taken not necessarily just as small detail, but it's heavily considered when someone commits a crime, like the context of why or the background of, you know, who is this person? What's the history of them with this other person? I personally feel like in Canadian law, we don't really think about that as often as we probably should. Yeah, I mean, there, of course, we have these things called aggravating and mitigating factors when you decide mm -hmm. um, for making like criminal decisions. So of course, like, your background will definitely be one of those factors that's considered um because obviously if let's say you steal something but you're like poor and you're hungry and you steal like a loaf of bread like they're obviously like yeah this person literally stole this to survive so they might not be as harsh because that would be unfair and cruel to punish someone so severely just because they're trying to feed themselves but i mean of course you could create all these standards and stuff like that and try to come up with a bunch of like patchwork of laws, but I definitely think the easiest maybe possible solution to all of this, again, going back to making, having a wide array of people within the legal system. I mean, if you have a case, like where you have to think again, again, you're maybe you're trying to use the reasonable woman standard and you're trying to take the woman's perspective into account when dealing with matters of harassment and such. If you have a woman as a judge or someone who has the same lived experiences, they'll just automatically understand the experiences that the person is going through. So you won't necessarily have to create all these different standards and stuff like that because there already be such a diverse array of people within the legal system that it will just be un like unconsciously there and they'll just understand. So I think that might be like the easiest, most obvious solution.
Yeah, and that's something that's already implemented today in court. So that's that's great. Um, but yeah, is there anything you want to add overall about anything we've discussed so far? Um, not really. I mean, I think it may seem when talking about law and stuff like that and all these things, it may seem such like a grandiose abstract thing, but it's really not like context matters. People matter. Like that's the heart of law. Like, I think that's what makes it more interesting. Like the most interesting part, like just reading like a textbook or like picking up the criminal code, like that is like a fraction, a fraction of a fraction of what the law actually is. It's the people and, and their lives that actually make it up. So I think, humanizing it and understanding that it's not this huge thing and that you can interact with it you can be a part of making change if that's what you want to do like your opinion matters talking about your experiences matter being a part of the legal system matters but if definitely think if anybody's interested in that sort of field entering like policy or politics or law i definitely think don't be scared and you should go for it because having people is only going to make everything better, the system better for everybody. So I think if you're interested in pursuing that career, I definitely think is worthy and you guys should go for it. For sure. I, I agree with you. You know, I think that if anyone, first of all, if anyone wants to do anything, they should just go for it. But I really do think that these specific fields, when it comes to law, um, journalism politics right like you're there for a reason you know regardless of people's like personal opinions about those individual fields it's like and, and that in again this can apply to like i don't know the medical field too like any field this could apply to but it's like if you want to make a change you know what like just just do it you know like like don't be worried to like go ahead and even if the systems you feel are corrupt, like I used to want to be a politician. I used to want to be a lot of things, but I used to also want to go into politics until I was like, well, it seems to me like there's a lot of corruption and I don't know if I want to be a part of that. But still, I applaud people who are or my peers even that are engaging in politics because they see that corruption and they want to be the people to fix it, you know, and I just think that that type of initiative is so important to have especially today yeah I honestly even if you don't change the world or like the whole parade of being in politics or doing law and stuff like that it could be a, like really demotivating again going up against all these obstacles and not seeing the change right away is in the way that you want to be done but i definitely think there's a lot more value of just taking up space and seeing other people like you in those positions i don't think that the the importance is like recognized enough like just seeing people and just having people there that you think oh yeah this person looks like me or has the same experience as me i think that's in itself is so important and it's so much more impactful than most people think. So even if you might be demotivated or be like, oh, 
like it seems pointless i'm not gonna really do anything but taking up space in itself is such like a radical and important thing to do so go for it everybody (laughs) (laughs) yeah because everything you said is just very very true All right. Well, thank you so much for that very insightful conversation, Jada. I really appreciate hearing the thoughts behind your article in episode four of The Orbit season two. Check out Jada's article, Who is the Reasonable Person Anyway, in our holiday issue published earlier this month, along with other amazing work. You can also find everything on our website, thesputnik.ca. That's T-H-E-S-P-U-T-N-I-K dot C-A. Make sure to follow us on our socials, including X, TikTok, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And stay on the lookout for the next episode of The Orbit in the new year on Radio Laurier Station. Thank you so much for tuning in during the holidays and have an awesome weekend. Yes, thank you. Happy holidays, everybody.